Okay, we are at verse 13. What you heard from me, he says, keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. So he told him before, he talked to him about this gift given and to guard the gift, and then he goes on and says, uh, well, what is that? You know, he talks about the Holy Spirit. And then he says, now, the pattern you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. Um, this is one of the concepts, I'll set this over here. It's one of the concepts that made the Christian church, Church of Christ, unique. The people, and you, the people that are members here at Liberty, you have a storied, uh, you know, heritage, a wonderful heritage that you have at this church about being around from back then to these people early in American history who were trying to obey this concept. Some people call it biblical precedent, um, but what it is is that we try to imitate the apostles' uh, doctrine and belief. And where they had a consistent pattern of teaching from church to church, then we see that pattern in all the apostles' writings. We see it in their example in the book of Acts. Where we see that pattern, we imitate it. And I think I've shared with you guys before the illustration uh, of a cookie cutter, where you might have sprinkles on one cookie and frosting on another, uh, or some other kind of topping on another cookie, or maybe you just like your cookie with a little bit of sprinkled sugar on there, uh, or maybe nothing on your cookie at all, but you can tell they all came from the same cutter. And some things in our churches are not mandated. There's no biblical mandate. There's no biblical command. You know, it, Paul did it one way and, and Peter did it another and from church to church. Like the building, there was no pattern of behavior. Sometimes they met in the temple. Sometimes they met in homes. Sometimes they met, you know, down by the river. You know, uh, sometimes they met in, in rented lecture halls. Uh, eventually, they even, they even built buildings. Sometimes uh, they, they uh, co-opted synagogues that turned into churches. So there was no pattern of, of a building. You don't, even, you don't even have to have a building to be a church. A church and a building have nothing to do with each other. A church can have a building or a place that they meet, but that's not what makes a church a church. And so, um, really, uh, there's no pattern there. But w- there are certain things that we do see. Every, every one of the Christians, every one of the churches, well, they take the Lord's Supper every week, Right? Each one of the churches, they would have elders, deacons, and evangelists. Every one of the churches uh, had uh, the same teaching on their core doctrines. Uh, all of them immersed. Nobody sprinkled or you know, poured. They all immersed. There, there was a pattern of things. And so that's why we, for example, take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. There's no verse in the Bible that says, Thou shalt take the Lord's Supper every Sunday or you're going to hell. There's no such verse. There's no command that you take because God didn't come to give us a law or some legalism that if we miss a Sunday or we're on vacation or whatever, oh, you're going to hell now. That's not what, what God is calling us to do is to do it in remembrance of Him and to have that habit in our life. And what we see the early Christians do is they were devoted to that. And we even see in, in, in an example given of them taking the Lord's Supper because many of them were slaves and they couldn't meet in the day, they would have their church meeting in the early hours of the morning and take the Lord's Supper in the middle of what we would consider the middle of the night, but actually the early hours of the morning on the first day of the week because it was the only time they could meet. They were so devoted to getting together and taking the Lord's Supper that even if they couldn't 
um, you know, during the daytime when they had to work as slaves, if they couldn't take the Lord's Supper then, then they'd do it before hours. They'd stay up late or get up early uh, to, to be devoted. That's how devoted they were to taking the Lord's Supper. And then we're told and, and commanded again and again by the Apostle Paul and the others to imitate their teaching, to imitate their traditions. And so where we see a tradition or a pattern, we should imitate it. Did Paul go around from church to church to church and have elders? Did the very first church in Jerusalem have elders? Sure, all these churches, they went around and they eventually put elders and deacons and evangelists in them. And, and that was their pattern. So that, isn't that what we should be doing? And that's, that's the big point here with 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus is this stuff is not just uh, descriptive. Some of it is prescriptive where there's a pattern. See, he says, what you heard from me, what I taught you, Timothy, what you heard from me, your father in the faith, from me, the apostle of Christ. Remember, that's how he set up the beginning of this book. What were the two relationships of why he should listen to him? Number one, because I'm an apostle of Christ. Number two, because I'm like a father to you. He set up that relationship at the beginning of the book. And now he's saying, what you heard from me, an apostle of Christ, and a guy that's like a father to you, what you heard from me, keep is the pattern of sound, and sound means healthy, healthy teaching. With what? With faith and love in Christ. It's not enough to hold to the pattern You've got to do it with faith and you've got to do it with love. And the belt of truth is to hold together your armor, not for you to take off and whip people with. And we're not to be beating people over the head with communion and beating people over the head with stuff, with the pattern. We shouldn't be uh, alienating people. Um, we should be teaching people and patient with people and hold to this pattern. Keep it. There's a pattern to New Testament Christianity. There's a pattern of behavior between all the apostles and all of their teachings. There's a pattern throughout the book of Acts and we are commanded to keep it. That's why I believe taking the Lord's Supper every Sunday and only Sunday. The verse that tells us when they met on the first day of the week tells us why they met to take the Lord's Supper. You know, everybody goes to church every Sunday. Everybody thinks, well, yeah, churches should meet on Sunday. Yeah. Well, the only verse you're going to do that tells you why. Why should we meet, right? And they're like, well, if you take the Lord's Supper every week like the apostles did, it, it won't be special anymore. Why was it still special to the apostles when they took it every week? And I notice that they don't, do, they don't do that with the other thing commanded to do on the first day of the week. That's the offering. They still take that up every week. They don't go, we're just going to take up our offering quarterly because when we take it up every week, it's not special anymore. I don't hear any pastors doing that. They still take it up every week and maybe a couple times. I remember, I remember that Paino guy, the, the preacher at the big church up in Fort Wayne when I was a kid. He'd take up an offering and during church they'd count it. If it wasn't enough, he'd take up another offering. He'd even have the usher shut the door and stay at the door and not let people leave till his offering was what he wanted it to be. But uh, Paul Paino, was an, he was a whack job. But anyway, the, uh, the, the good deposit that was entrusted to you guard it with the help of the holy spirit who lives in us so we keep it and we guard it what well, what do we keep and guard the pattern of healthy teaching given to us 
by the apostles and prophets. For, for Timothy, the guy who taught him, was the apostle Paul. That's what, that's, you want to say, what's the difference between our church and the Methodists and the Lutherans and the, you know, all the other, every other church? Here's the difference. What is the authority for doctrine and practice? The authority for doctrine and practice for us isn't the Pope of Rome. It isn't the Council of Nicaea. It isn't the writings of Martin Luther. It's not the writings of John Wesley. It's not the teachings of John Calvin. It's not any human. It's not some council. It's not the voting block at the Southern Baptist Convention in Atlanta, Georgia. It's not this, the synod somewhere. It's not the, uh, you know, Church of England's Archbishop of Canterbury or the Queen, the guardian of the faith of the, the English church. Um, it's not the uh, voting of the uh, tribal leaders in Scotland of the Presbyterian church. The authority isn't a creed. It's not something man-made. It comes from the apostles. That's why we do what we do, believe what we believe, and practice what we practice. Or at least it should be. We've given lip service to that. We, and some of it we've restored. You know, we've restored um, how to obey the gospel, restored what the gospel is. We've even restored some of the titles of leadership. But one of my biggest problems is we've got the titles of biblical leadership, but we don't have the actual offices in practice. We're not having elders do what elders do and deacons do what deacons do and evangelists do what evangelists do as is laid out in these books, this pattern that Paul said to follow. And <clears throat> the other problem is there's all kinds of commands that are just as important as Acts 2.38. Maybe some could even argue more important, more fundamental that we don't obey. Like we're all about Acts 2.38 and won't compromise on it, but uh, that Matthew chapter 28 Verse 18 and 19, that good commission, you know, or, or, you know, Mark 16, 15. Oh, we're real legalistic about Mark 16, 16, but what about Mark 16, 15? We'll tell these other people, it says right there, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. We've got a hold of that, okay, yeah? Well, in verse 15, it says, go into all the world and preach good news. Are you doing that? So we need to hold to the whole pattern. Of teaching, And then some people today, they'll treat communion really flippantly. Well, it's the end of the week of senior week for the high schoolers. It's uh, Friday night and the tomorrow, Saturday, they're going to leave. We want to do something really spiritual at the end of the week at camp. So let's just have communion on Friday night. You know, that's like, you know, it's like the guys that I've talked to you guys about before. You know, they're in a foxhole. They're being bombed by the Japanese in World War II. They want to do something religious. So someone took off their helmet and passed it around. They took up an offering. <laughs> well, there was no point in taking up an offering, but they wanted to do something spiritual in case they died. And that's what some people, well, I just want to do something spiritual. They, they don't understand that communion is to remember on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the day that the church was established. That, it's like, you know, it's like, um, you know, we want to do something patriotic. I know it's April, but let's celebrate the 4th of July now. <laughs> uh, you know, it's like celebrating your birthday six months earlier or whatever. You know, there's a, there's a reason that we celebrate on Sunday. And last Sunday should give you a hint what it was that we're celebrating. Why do we take the Lord's Supper on Sunday, on the first day of the week? Because that's the day he rose from the dead. And that's what we're celebrating there, okay? And that's what we're remembering. And so... Uh, there's a pattern. That's why I'm an every Sunday only Sunday. If I believe that I need to take it every Sunday because that's what the apostles did, 
then I should take it only Sunday because that's what the apostles did. I can't have it both ways. I can't say, yeah, we should take it every week because that's what the apostles did. Well, then I should only take it on that day because that's what the apostles did. So if one of those makes sense, the other one makes sense. And if you take away the one, you've got to take away the other. And if you're going to say, well, we can take the Lord's Supper anytime we want, then you've got to say, we don't need to take it Sunday. Because you either have to follow the apostles' pattern or you're not going to follow the apostles' pattern. You're either going to obey this or not. It's as simple as that. And so that's what leads me to my convictions about the Lord's Supper. That's what leads me to my convictions about church leadership. That's why, though it's not a salvation issue, you can be wrong about it and still go to heaven. That's, that's why I'm a stickler on not calling the preacher pastor. Because it's actually a bigger deal. It's not a matter of salvation, but it's a big deal. It's not essential to salvation, but it is important, you know? I mean, I could cut your arm off and you can still live, but you'll miss it, right? I mean, if I cut both your legs off, you know, you'd be like... <laughs> that's going to be... That's going to really hold you back, you know, from getting around, you know. Come back, I'll gum you to death. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the whole insanity of... You know, yeah, okay, it's not essential to salvation, but it's still a really important thing. And we need to realize there's a pattern to sound teaching and, and we want to follow it. Uh, look what it says in Philippians. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk as, uh, who so walk as we have us for us a pattern. So when I was in Bible college, I had a professor who taught my ex class who I loved. If he wasn't my favorite professor, he was right up there with another guy. I mean, they were neck and neck for, you know, they were my New Testament professor, my Old Testament professor, and they were wrestling for Kendall's favorite. And, um, I mean, I love this guy, and this guy taught me what I'm teaching you about biblical precedent. He taught it to me. Well, um, you know, as best I can tell, he has since abandoned that. And now, you know, people say things like the book of Acts is descriptive, but it's not prescriptive. In other words, it describes what they did, but it doesn't show us what we should do. Well, then what's the point of it? If there's not a pattern, and so he was online saying this stuff, and I'm like, I'm like, that's not what you taught me. And he tried to say on there that his view didn't change. I'm like, well, then who taught this to me? If that wasn't you teaching my class, who are you, and what have you done with my professor? It was kind of my, and, um, and so I said, well, we need to hold to the pattern. And I just couldn't believe. He's smart. He's like, I've been teaching uh, the Bible at the collegiate level, have my doctorate degree, and I don't know anywhere where it talks about a pattern. I about fell out of my, uh, my chair. So I, I didn't want to argue with my beloved professor, so I just went and copied all the verses that talk about a pattern and holding to it and imitating them and just posted it. And what could he, he didn't have anything to say. There's nothing he could say. It's in there. Brethren, join following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Now does that tell you that what the apostles did was descriptive and not prescriptive? Or does that tell you that what they did consistently from church to church is prescriptive? You tell me. 
It's prescriptive, isn't it? It's telling them, hold to the pattern. There's a pattern. You, it's a, there's an example. You follow it. That's what it's saying. Look at Romans. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. It sets you free from being a slave to sin when you follow the pattern of New Testament gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as taught by the apostles, liberates you from sin. And you have to hold to that pattern. There's a pattern of how to accept Jesus. There's a pattern of how to walk in Jesus and live in Jesus. There's a pattern of how the church is supposed to be organized and structured. And here's the one that, I'm preaching to the choir when I just said all that. Now I'm going to get up and step on your toes. There's also a pattern of what a Christian's supposed to do when it comes to evangelism. Are you doing that one? You're holding on baptism. You're holding on uh, the, the gifts. You're, you know, you've got all kinds of teaching. You're holding on. You're, you're, oh, yeah, we need elders and deacons and evangelists. Yeah, I'm a, yeah, 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 Kendall, preach it, preach it. We take the Lord's Supper every week. Preach it, Kendall. Okay, are you going out and are you telling people about Jesus? Hey, there's, there's a pattern there. And, and I'm telling you, that one's, as far as I can tell from Scripture, more important. Because... It doesn't matter if you know how to baptize somebody if you don't ever have anybody that you've talked to about the gospel who wants to get baptized. You know, that's like knowing the cure and then not telling anybody you got it. I figure if you don't know the cure and you don't tell anybody about it, that's probably a worse sin than not knowing the cure. So there's a pattern of sound teaching and we're to follow it. And that's what Paul is telling him to do. And he says to guard it. Why do you guard something? Because it's in danger of being stolen, killed, trampled, or otherwise ruined. You know, why do we got to guard the President of the United States? Because some people would like to kill him. Why do you guard your house? Why do you lock your house? Why do you lock your car? Well, some of you live out here probably don't. I'm talking to country folk. The... Uh, I live in the suburbs. I lock everything. <laughs> uh, I used to live in Cincinnati. I got in that habit. I, I, don't, I don't ever go anywhere. <laughs> I lived in the country for a long time. I didn't have any neighbors. I didn't need to lock anything. But still, I'd get on my car. Because <laughs> I lived in Cincinnati. Once you've lived there, you lock everything. I'm telling you, one time, I was, I was, um, I was young. I just got married in my first apartment. I'm vacuuming in the living room. And my vacuum, the, the little rubber thing, locks up and it sit, catches on fire and I take it and I set it out on the front sidewalk because my it's on fire I went downstairs and and uh, got my uh, ex-wife and told her the the vacuum that her grandma gave us is on fire she came up to see it and it was gone <laughs> someone stole a burning hoover <laughs> it was smoking it was on there was fire there was flames Who sees a burning vacuum and goes, you know, I think I'm going to swipe that before they come back. I lock it everywhere. I lock it all up. So, verse 15. You know that everyone in the province of Asia deserted me? Whoa. 
He's telling him, hey, remember how I laid hands on you? Remember how I gave you this authority? Guard what's entrusted to you with the power of the Holy Spirit. Hold to that pattern. Hold to the pattern. Why? Why? And guard it. Why? Because some people will bail on the pattern. Some people will bail on you. There are people who won't guard what's been entrusted to them. You know, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including uh, Phrygelius and Hermogenes, and Hermogenes, excuse me, and may the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. You see, you didn't, nobody was bringing you food or anything when you're in jail. The only way Paul was going to get good food is if somebody came and brought it to him. And, and everybody bailed on him and deserted him and left him. And only Onesiphorus was the only one coming and bringing him any food. Refreshing him. Because he wasn't ashamed that, to be friends with a guy in jail and chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. So we're learning here that Paul had some sort of trial in Ephesus. Something he went through. Um, some people think he, he was thrown into a coliseum and faced down lions. Some think when he said that he was talking metaphorically about the lions. But he went through something in Ephesus. And this guy was with him. And now when he gets arrested and, and taken to Rome again, everybody else abandons him. This guy comes, finds him while he's in jail in Rome and get, meets his needs. You know, sometimes you can feel like everyone has turned their back on you. You know, you get in that depressed thing. You just fought something, did something for the Lord. And, and a lot of times that valley comes right after a peak. You'll have, if you're in ministry, you'll have an awesome Sunday and uh, you'll feel really good and then something will happen Monday. Someone will just pop your bubble. There have been times when I preached a sermon and I felt so good about the sermon and then as I'm standing there shaking people's hands, so thankful for the Lord using me that day and the exciting time and the good things going on at church and then someone will just come and they'll have a complaint or a comment or, you know, criticism and just suck the life out of you, you know. And... uh there's times when people will bail on you too. And you can feel alone. And you might be there for a little bit, but God won't desert you. And God will always send somebody. Oh, I think old Elijah getting up there and taking on the prophets of Baal and having all that courage and doing all that good. And then right afterwards, the queen threatens his life and he runs off and hides and and he's feeling depressed, you know. Killed all the other prophets. I'm the only one left. I just wish I was dead. You know. And the angel comes and comforts him and gives him some food and says, dude, take a nap. You know, gives him a Snickers bar. You're not yourself when you're hungry, Elijah. Uh, you know. And, uh, and so he, he, he comes. And that's, you know, that's Paul. Onesiphorus comes with a Snickers bar. You know, or whatever, you know, sometimes, and I know you guys th think sometimes you, you belittle what, well, what, you know, what's my gift? I don't, you know, one of the gifts in, that the Holy Spirit gives, and not a supernatural gift, but a gift that He gives, is 
is the gift of mercy giving. And some of you just feel this inclination to make a dessert for someone. Do it. You feel this desire to write them a card. Mm-hmm. Call them. Yeah. Send an email. Yeah. Send a little gift or do something nice for them. You, God just puts that in your heart. Yeah, you do that. When you get that urge, you feel Because hey, I don't know how many times I've, I've done that and then people are like, you know, I just really needed that. It was, you know, God directing me. And I don't know how even many more times people have done that for me just when I need it. That a card shows up, a hug, a word of encouragement, an email, a text, you know, where they just encourage you. And uh, you, you, there's no, uh, I can't emphasize enough how important that is. You know, Paul says at times he despaired of life. He wished he was dead. And when you're in jail and some of your closest friends abandon you and leave you there without any food or clothing even, not even proper coat, and, and they chicken out and they're ashamed of the gospel and, the, and they abandon what you taught and they don't hold to the pattern of teaching that you've risked your life to give them, and you feel like, oh man, what have I been doing all this for? And then the Onesiphorus shows up. Just that one guy. That one, you know, the preacher at the town next down who realized, well, look at him, he's in a tight spot. And, uh, um, you know, I've had several, you know, Onesiphoruses in my life. One of them, Jake Brown right there, who has given me opportunity, encouraged me, and been a blessing to me. I mean, all these classes I've taught here and all the people I've been able to love and, and to teach over the past several years here, that's, that's Jake's doing. Jake opened that door for me. <coughs> that's been an encouragement to me. <coughs> Kirk Hacker is one of those people for me. And Harvey Hacker was one of those people for my dad at the lowest point of his life in 1980. And um, there are people that God just sends... And uh, Harvey went through his own hard time in his ministry in life. And when everybody else abandoned him, Dad was there for him. And uh, that's the way you need to be. And when you see somebody hurting or going through it or struggling, or you think, man, if I was in their shoes, I'd be aching. And you think, maybe I should. Yes, you should. Yes, you should. You do that. We, we need to build relationship and have uh, people who won't abandon us. And um, I'll tell you something about hard times. They'll, they'll do, uh, hard times have blessings and curses to them. But here's one of the blessings of hard times. Okay? You'll find out who your real friends are when you go through hard times. So, uh, he wasn't ashamed of... Some abandon the faithful. Look at Second uh, Timothy 1.15. Uh, this you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among them who are Phagilius uh, and Hermogenes. I can never say his name right. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, who's often refreshed me. I'm reading the same verse twice. How's that? I'm not sure. Um, so, uh, go on. There we go. This is what he wanted. Second uh, Timothy 4.16. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 
Uh, three times I was uh, shipwrecked. A night and day I have been in the deep. And the journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often hunger and thirst, and fastings and cold and nakedness. And besides all these other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. The hardest thing Paul says, and besides all this, the worst of all is I'm sitting around concern for all these churches I planted and I'm worried about everybody's soul. You know, I got, I don't know about you, but I got a lot of responsibilities and a lot of hardships and a lot of difficulties that I face. But my biggest concern is Madison, Matt, Macklin, Drake, and Kaylee. And then the church that I've been working with. I'm concerned for them. When you love people, they become a concern. And it's a burden. And on top of it, he's got all of this stuff. And when you go into ministry, this is where it can end. There'll be situations where you've got more work than time. More bills than money. Um, more need than supply. More criticism than encouragement. More abandonment than people sticking with you. Those times come. And, but God works through that and He sends the right people at the right time. All those in Asia deserted me. Uh, so who were these two clowns? Well, uh, we know nothing of these individuals but what is mentioned here. It would seem that they were prominent persons and those from whom the apostle had the right to expect other treatment. The, the traditions allege that they were uh, of the 70 disciples and in the end became followers of Simon Magnus. That's Simon the sorcerer who started um, modern day, or even back then, all the way up to modern day Gnosticism. Um, I just saw, I was flipping through the news the other day and there was a thing about um, Madonna and her kid got matching tattoos and who cares, but this news somehow. And, and I looked at it and it was the Kabbalah symbol, what they call the tree of life, because she follows Ju the Jewish Kabbalah religion, which is a mixture of Judaism, mysticism, and Gnosticism, witchcraft, and uh, that's what she's a part of. I mean, Madonna is basically a witch, and uh, because that's what Kabbalah is, and I'm not using that term metaphorically, I'm literally uh, practicing in witchcraft, and that started with the Simon Magnus uh, who was Simon the sorcerer who tried to buy the ability to give the Holy Spirit from Peter that we read about in the book of Acts. And so they think that this guy started, they start, church tradition says that they abandoned Paul and started following this guy and the Gnostic version of Christianity where they mix Christianity together with Jewish mysticism and, and cult ideas from the East and uh, some... Uh, uh, astrology stuff that came from uh, the dark side of Zoroastrianism. Anyway, it, you're, I'm boring you, but the, uh, basically it's, it's, a, it's a witchcraft Gnostic ideas that m this Simon Magnus, whose historical character, he's a real dude, it really happened, uh, where, where it all came from. And he's even mentioned in the Bible. So um, it is a sad thing that when the only record made of man, the only evidence which we have they ever lived at all, is that they turned away from a friend, forsook the paths of true religion. And yet there are many men who the only thing to be remembered of them is 
that they live to do wrong. How sad if the only thing a church remembers about you is that you abandon them and abandon the faith. How, what, what a terrible thing if your legacy is your treason. When, these are the Benedict Arnolds of the church. And uh, what a sad legacy for them that we don't want. Uh, Onesiphorus means bringing profit, and he was profitable <laughs> to Paul. Um, he was named twice um, in, uh, in the Bible. And he mentions in terms of grateful love, having a noble courage and generosity on his behalf amid his trials as a prisoner in Rome when others whom he expected better things had deserted him. Probably other members of the family were also active Christians. It's evident from uh, 2 Timothy uh, 1.18 that Onesiphorus had a home in Ephesus. Um, and so he's an Ephesian. Okay. The Lord grant him that he may find mercy on the day not a, is not a prayer to get him out of purgatory or praying for the dead. Okay, so um, our Catholic friends take this and say, see, this is proof of purgatory. Paul was praying about, well, he wasn't dead. You can't pray about a purgatory when he's not there. This isn't praying that it, to get Onesiphorus out of purgatory. And it's not a praying for the dead, like, you know, like some um, Mormons like to twist it. It's neither one of those things. It's Paul uh, giving a blessing on him and his future. In other words, he was really good to me. And on Judgment Day, may God show him mercy on Judgment Day. See, he wasn't praying for, for Onesiphorus to be blessed now. Because if he was blessed now for helping him, whatever blessing he got, he'd lose. So he's praying for God to bless him on the day of judgment for his kindness. Remember what Jesus talked about on the day of judgment. How do you separate from the sheep from the ghost? When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, gave me something to drink. When I was sick or in prison, you. When I was naked, you. That's exactly the things that Onesiphorus did for Paul. And then Jesus says, what you did for one of the least of these, you've done it unto me. So for what Onesiphorus did for Paul, he did for Jesus. <laughs> so you've got the widow who's alone in the church and hurting at the loss of her husband. And you take care of her and you love her and you encourage her and you spend time with her. Um, what you do to them, you do to Christ. Those you visit in the hospital, you visited Jesus in the hospital. Those that you went, who were sick and visited, the people that you cared for, that you helped, the needy, the little uh, kid and, and the single mom that you blessed, every little act of service that you do, the card you sent, you sent it to Jesus. And then Jesus says that's how he'll know how to separate the sheep from the goats. And so that's what he's saying. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. That, that's right, you know. That's right in, in the Beatitudes. Proverbs 11.25, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Give, and it'll be given to you. Only, only be multiplied, poured back, overflowing, packed down, shaken together. You know, not like these Dorito bags that's all air and a couple Doritos. And we're talking jammed and shoved in there, full up. That's how God's going to pour blessing into your life. 
if you will uh, be a blessing to others. Okay? So we are done with uh, chapter 1, and let's uh, look at my clock here. Okay, great. Let's go to chapter 2. Rocking along. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace of Jesus Christ and in the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who'll be able to teach others. Now, he just told him a few verses ago, what did he say to him? Hold to the pattern, guard the pattern that I gave to you. Now what's he saying? Hold it, guard it, then what? Pass it on. But just pass it on willy-nilly? No, look what he says. My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you've heard me say among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach to others also. Part of, we should minister to everybody. Jesus even talked about, you know, serving the least of these. So there, there isn't anybody you're too good to minister to. There isn't anybody too good that you shouldn't reach out to and love and, and try to help. But let's be honest. You have infinite time? No. Limited time. Infinite resources? No. Limited resources. Infinite opportunities? No. Limited opportunities. So where you do need to make time for people, some people are like a black hole. It doesn't matter how much love and attention you stuff down it, it's never enough. And when you're in ministry, you're going to have um, problem people. Where no matter how much you try, they're still going to have problems. Because they're emotionally needy and they need something from God that you can't give. And you're going to have to pray about it and let God give that to them. There are other people, though, who are possibility people. There are all kinds of people that Jesus wouldn't talk to and that Jesus just walked away from. That wanted his attention, he didn't give it. Because he was focused on what? The 12 apostles. And among the 12 apostles, even among the 12 that he was focused on, there were three that he gave special attention to. Preachers, you cannot be best friends with everyone in the church. Sorry, you can't do it. Now, do you need to try to love and help everyone in the church? Sure. And elders, same thing. But the problem is, you cannot give all of your time to everyone. It's just impossible. So a good portion of your time needs to be invested in duplicating. This was the problem, if you go back to the book of Exodus, that, that, that Moses had. He was trying to be everything to everyone, and that was just impossible. And he wasn't meeting all the people. The people were going away unsatisfied because he was trying to do it all himself. And so his father-in-law comes along and says, he says, check it out. Pops, look what I'm doing. He's trying to impress his father-in-law. And his father-in-law, a guy named Jethro, not Jethro Bodine from... Beverly Hillbillies, different kind of Jethro. I mean, I know the word, I know the name Jethro in your mind is a hillbilly, but he was not. He, he was an Arabian prince. But anyway, uh, Jethro tells him what you're doing isn't good. And then that's just the worst when your father-in-law starts criticizing you. And then, but he gives him advice and, and Moses humbles himself and takes, says, what you're, not, what you're doing isn't good. You need to delegate to qualified men and teach them the basics. They can handle the easy cases and you only take the hard cases. In other words, you need to appoint uh, a local court, an appellate court, and you, you, Moses, you're the Supreme Court. And you judge the harder cases. And you need to set up a system and you need to delegate your authority. You lay hands on them, give them some of your authority so that they can help lead and teach the people. And so that's what Moses did and it worked well. And that was the, the form of government established by God through Moses that lasted all the way up till King Saul. 
And we need to pass it on. There is no preacher that can be everything everybody in the church wants him to be. It's impossible. You get a church to grow, you know, once you're over 100 people, forget the preacher going and seeing everybody in the hospital or doing every funeral or doing every, you know, it's just impossible. Um, you know, that's why we have multiple elders to do the pastoral stuff. You don't just have one guy doing the pastoral. You need multiple because churches need multiple elders. And the elders delegated away to the deacons the physical responsibilities of feeding the widows and taking care of physical ministry in the church. Why? Because the elders can't do all that physical ministry and the spiritual ministry too. Delegation to qualified individuals whom, if you're going to have qualified individuals, they must be trained. And somebody's got to train them. And before there's elders and before there's deacons, there's evangelists. And it's the evangelist's job to start the process. And once you have elders and deacons, their job to continue the process of everyone equipping all the saints. All leaders of the church have this in common. They're trying to equip every member of the church for some ministry. But who should an evangelist be equipping? Faithful men. Okay, so they got to be, number one, they got to be faithful to God. There's a lot of faithful men, though, that can't teach. They, they work good with their hands. They'll be good deacons. They're, they're, they, they, they even have some leadership qualities, but they're not good teachers. You need faithful men who are also able to do what? Teach others. You need to identify in your congregation men who are both faithful and able to teach. That's one of the jobs of an evangelist. You say, what should my preacher be doing? He didn't come and, you know, hold my hand when I had my bunion removed. Look, that's not his job. That's the elder's job to pray for sick people. And we have, we have preachers doing all kinds of stuff that's not the preacher's job. You know, well, we're paying you. Why, why wouldn't you mow the lawn? You know, well, because he should be spending his time teaching reliable men to teach others so they can pass on what was given to them. It's one of the most important uh, things that a preacher can do. Um, <clears throat> what, uh, 50 years from now, if the Lord tarries, it will not be what Jake preached last Sunday that leaves the legacy of his ministry. In fact, it won't even be what he preached on all the Sundays he preached. The legacy and the future of Liberty Christian Church is whether or not Jake finds some reliable guys who are able to teach and he passes it on to them. Because he's not here forever. He's not going to live forever and he won't be here forever. The time will come if Jesus doesn't come back first where... Jake is not the preacher at Liberty Christian Church. And so if Jake wants to leave a ministry, or a, a legacy, excuse me, here at this church that lasts into the future, he has to train some, some men who are able to teach others. And that delegation of teaching and doctrine is essential to the health and the life in the future church. Why can't we find elders in churches, when we have enough men qualified to be elders or deacons or leaders, why do we struggle so hard? Because at some point, the leaders didn't pass it on. 
And one of the problems is a lot of elders and preachers are about having control and having their own little kingdom. And they don't want to train or delegate authority. They want to keep all authority and all power to themselves. And so they're not training and delegating. It's why little churches that do that are putting out more preachers than big churches who aren't giving any opportunity for young men to learn how to preach and teach. Because they're, they're not going to let some kid up in front of their 3,000 member service. And they're not developing a program to get them teaching their small groups or in their, or in their, or in their youth or whatever. You, we need a program to develop to identify uh, talent, preachers. And, and I'm talking identify them even when they're, when they're young boys. You know, you say, well, what do you look for? Look for the most obnoxious, loudmouthed little brat in your church. He's preacher material. Telling you, I'm speaking from experience here. Okay, they've got a little fight in them, a little fight, feisty in them. That's that's your preacher right there. He's able to talk and communicate, and a little, a little mouthy. Yeah, there you go. You just found it. That's the one the Lord wants to use, and then have them pass this on, so that they're able to teach others. Look what he says, my son. He calls him my true son in First Timothy. <coughs> Uh, calls him my son in 2 Timothy 2.1. In Titus, he calls Titus a true son in the common faith. He is appealing to him very intimately. The Apostle John says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. You will have no greater joy in your ministry than to train someone up and send them out and see them faithfully go out and serve and train others. It's your legacy and there's no greater joy. And if you want to make a difference, then you need to disciple some people. That's the fun part of ministry. There's so many parts of ministry that aren't fun. My goodness, don't just take all the bad medicine and don't get any of the fun. Don't you know, be pricked by the thorn and not smell the roses. Don't miss out on the good part of ministry. Um, I have no greater joy than to see my three kids walking in the truth. My literal physical kids. But I also have great joy in seeing the people I trained walking in the truth. Doesn't that give you joy? When you've affected somebody, you trained somebody, you taught somebody. And notice this, he calls them son. He treated them as if they were his sons. The relationship level that Paul gave for them to emulate is like family. Look how close Jesus got to his apostles. How much time he spent with them. How much he invested in them. You're like, Kendall, that's a big, yeah. Yeah, that's a big requirement. And and quite frankly, your wife's going to have to be on board. Because if your wife isn't willing to open her home for you to have guys over in your house and teach them and have meals with them and, and barbecue with them and spend time with them and, and be okay with you going off on a, a guy's going to men's camp for the week and bonding together, or a guy's going off to Kaimichi's, or a guy's going to Hillsboro together. If you're not willing to, uh, you know, if the wife's not willing to, you're not going to be able to do it. Because it's going to be, you've got to develop 
this close friendship where you spend time together. And he says, be strong in the grace. Look what it says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. When you see a guy writing from jail that is like a father figure to you, and he's telling you, hold to what I taught you. Hold to this pattern and pass it on to others. And do it in the strength of the Lord and the grace of God. Here's a guy who lived that. Here's a guy who shows that by God's strength, you can do amazing things. 2 Timothy 1, 13-14 Follow the pattern of sound words you've heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit. So what do we do? We follow. We guard. And we pass on to faithful guys who are able to teach. What was one of the qualifications for an elder, by the way? Able to teach. Pass those things on. I see my friend Chris Williams who I spent hours with in the woods. Hours. Hours sitting at the creek behind his house fishing for catfish. Went on weekend coon hunts with him to hunts where he was putting his dog in competitions and spent time with him, invested in him. I didn't grow up doing coon hunting or that. I didn't, wasn't in the, Why was I doing this? I wanted to invest in his life. And now, if I'm out of town and I need somebody to fill in and preach, there's Chris who can step right. Or I've had CJ, who's one of the young men in my church that I discipled, went off to Bible college and (coughs) got into ministry. I've got people who I've passed on, who who I've poured my life into. And even some of the men of the church who were pretty sound in the faith before I got there who I've been able to teach and instruct are now even more equipped to step in, to teach lessons, to, 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 to lead. That's your legacy. Commit to the faithful to be able to teach. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. You are a steward of the truth. And if you're a preacher, you're a steward of evangelism and gospel and leadership in your church. And you need to invest what God has given you. A steward has to be found. If you've been given some talents, you better be investing those and doubling your money. God gave you a talent to preach. A talent to teach. A talent to know the Word of God to the level where you're a leader in His church. Now, are you going to hide that? Or are you going to invest that in some other people? And I don't mean just teaching on Sunday morning. I mean training somebody else to do what you do. You need to be duplicating yourself. Because, man, we need more preachers. And if you are not a preacher and you're feeling, man, I'd like to be a preacher or maybe I'm called to do that. Maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. I mean, good grief, Kendall does it. If that idiot can do it, I can do it. Uh, And you're feeling that way. You're right. You can you know, t- 
talk to me. Let me hook you up with some lessons at Summit. Let me get you. We need preachers. We get calls all the time. People, even just little congregations that just need somebody to be a part-time where you can be bivocational. Do your job and then on Sunday preach at a church. Help a church get on its feet. <coughs> you can do this. You can be a part of that. And if, I know people are going to be watching me online on videos. Same to you. We need reliable people. You want to get taught? Summit will teach you. You already preaching somewhere and you want education? Talk to Summit. And we will make it affordable for you to get educated, get trained. Um, I, it, I am so heavily involved in it because I don't know anything else I could do that would have a bigger effect. We are all to teach everyone. However, evangelists should focus on instructing the faithful teachers, not just believers. It is part of the evangelist's job to do that. And if you're a parent, it's part of your job to do that with your kids. If you're a grandparent, with your kids and your grandkids. Now, if you're a great-grandparent, you've really got your work cut out for you. But we are all called to be a part of sharing with others and teaching other believers. But evangelists, you're called to train up future leaders, to duplicate yourself. And part of your schedule every week should be involved with you training Sunday school teachers, training leaders. We're going to do something here that uh, Jake and I have cooked up um, on the 6th and the 7th of May. We're going to have a real quick little Friday night, Saturday morning into Saturday afternoon seminar. Uh, It's what I used to call the teacher training program. I would do it uh, at at churches. And I've done it with the, I, I even did it with teenagers when I was at uh, this church I've, I've been at, and, and several of them went into ministry from it. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how to study the Bible. Just how to study the Bible on Friday night. And we're just going to, a two hour with a break in between, kind of like this, on how do you study the Bible. And then on Saturday morning, we're going to talk about how do you write an outline for a lesson. And, and, and write a lesson. How do you do that? How do you come up with a sermon or a Sunday school lesson or a home group Bible study? How do you do that? And then I'm going to give you, uh, in the last hour after lunch, some tips on public speaking, on, on things you can do to become a better you know, public order. And, and when I used to do this, it would, I would do it for like 12 weeks and it would be long and, and, and I would have the guys write lessons and get, take turns giving the lessons. We can't do all that. But I'm going to give you a little condensed version, a shot in the arm of a teacher training program. Anybody wants to come to that? I mean, your, your girl's like, well, I can't preach. I know, but you can teach a Sunday school class. And you older ladies, um, I think we pretty much covered, you've been commanded to teach a younger lady, so get with it. Um, get your skills together because you have a responsibility to t- teach others. But the evangelist, that's, that's your job is identify faithful, able to teach men, and train them. Um, Jesus went to church, didn't he? Sure, look what it says. On the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. Jesus went to synagogue every Saturday. Every time the synagogue's doors were open, he was there. 
He'd go there for the public reading of scripture and hear sermons and worship. And he preached publicly. And he, and he grew, became strong in spirit, lived in the desert. Oh, that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist, people, I don't know, we got John the Baptist on there. Mark, every day as I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. So that's, Jesus was teaching every day. And after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went up there to teach and preach in towns. He, he taught his disciples. He had a small group, right, of guys he taught. And once Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he would spend time in prayer with just his disciples. We don't see him doing a whole lot of praying with the big crowds. He mostly preached to them. But with his disciples, he taught them how to pray and then he spent a lot of time in prayer with them. And then he also spent a fair amount of time praying alone. So Jesus, that was Jesus' ministry, right? But what had the greatest impact? What had the greatest impact? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. See, Jesus got up one day and he preached this thing about, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me and all this. And they didn't know that he was talking about communion or understood what it really meant yet. And they thought he was advocating cannibalism. And so, because they didn't understand it was a metaphor and they weren't paying attention, they all like, well, this is a hard saying. Who could accept it? And they all split and left. And everybody abandoned him. And this is right after he fed the 5,000 and they tried to crown him as king and then he preached a sermon and they all left him. So he preached a church of around 10,000 down to 12. And he says, you want to leave too, do you? That's what he asked the apostles. And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Why, when all of the crowds were abandoning him, did the 12 stick with him? Because he had spent enough time with him. They'd seen enough miracles. They'd seen enough of his example and they got enough of his teaching that they weren't going anywhere. And some people, you could teach them every Sunday morning. They could come, you got the big crowds coming in. And these churches today, they all focused on getting the big crowds. Big crowds, big crowds. We want to be a mega church. We want big crowds. But that's not where the power in Jesus' ministry was. Why are you a Christian today? Well, my mom taught me, or my dad taught me, or Sunday school teacher, or my friend shared the gospel with me. Or what? Okay, but why, why did they become Christians? Well, somebody shared it with them. But why? All the way back. Because the apostles got up on the day of Pentecost and preached the gospel. It wasn't the thousands of people that Jesus fed, or the hundreds upon hundreds who he healed, or the 70 who he sent out, or the 120 who were hanging out and believing even after the uh, resurrection. It was those 12 guys who he had personally trained who were able to get up and teach because he had replicated himself in them. He found faithful men who were able to teach. And they passed it on. And they found other faithful men who were able to teach who found other faithful people who were able to teach. And yeah, many people became Christians, but it was passed on because there was a series of church leaders trained, educated, and sent out to plant more churches and more churches and more churches. And so it goes until somebody started the church that converted the person that converted you. And Christianity is here today because Jesus trained 12 men. 
And Lynn Anderson in his book on eldership called They Smell Like Sheep, which in my opinion is the best book I've ever read on eldership. Now I don't agree with him on everything on the qualifications of elders chapter. You know I'm stricter than most on that. I feel like he's a little loosey-goosey there. But everything else in the book is fabulous. I highly recommend you read They Smell Like Sheep. And if you haven't... uh, um, if you're going to ordain elders or put people in as elders before you put them in, I'd have them read They Smell Like Sheep. But one of the things he writes in the book is, good equippers do it like Jesus did. They recruit 12, they graduate 11, and focus on three. <laughs> who are the men, if you're a preacher, who are the men you're training? Who are you equipping and training to evangelize, to, to, to teach, to pass it on. And I've got to preach before uh, thousands. I've gotten up in front of crowds of 3,500 people before and preached the gospel. Um, in 2020, I preached over 30,000 people listen to me preach online. That will not be my legacy. My legacy will be the men that I taught who go and teach others. That'll be my greatest impact long term. You want to do something great? You don't even have to be the best public speaker. You don't have to be the quality guy that they invite to speak in front of thousands. If you're just a good, solid Bible teacher who will take a little church of 50 to 100 and you go in there and you'll identify 12 guys who you can teach and train and get them to go teach and train others and inspire them to, to get involved in teaching and passing on the good news of Jesus Christ so that they end up being preachers and elders and deacons in the church and you establish a good church leadership and you solidify that church and then they go and pass it and pass it and pass it on. Over time, if the Lord tarries, that'll be a far greater impact than if you were some guy who went and preached before thousands. Discipling people is the most powerful thing you can do. Be training faithful leaders. That's why I want to go to churches and do leadership conferences. I want to go to churches and do evangelism seminars. That's why I want to go in and I want to train these faithful people who will, tr- who will train others. I want to create material. I want to create online stuff. I can't do that where I'm at right now. That's why I want to change what I'm doing. Because I have a passion and desire to go and train people in evangelism and in church leadership and um, in teaching. I, I want to do this. That's why I'm going to uh, be teaching online classes for Summit is so I can train up more and more and more and more people. I want to affect as many people as I can. And this happens when you teach quality people how to teach. How did my dad have so much impact? My dad wasn't the best preacher that you ever heard. He's good, but delivery-wise, content, yeah, he's right up there. Delivery, no, he wasn't. The, that's my brother Jeff. He's got the delivery skills. Uh, my my brother Jeff's a master. Um, you know, uh, he's a whole different level than me. But I can pass on to you. I can pass on to other people and train up other leaders. I don't have to be the best public speaker. 
I mean, I want to be the best public speaker I can, but I don't have to be the best. If I can just be good enough to pass on the faith to other faithful teachers. That's the way Jesus did it. Your greatest ministry is who you pass it on to. Follow my examples. I follow the example of Christ. Day after day in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They never quit. They passed it on. And that will be your greatest ministry. Some of you that I'm talking to right now, you are faithful. You love the Lord, but you're not equipped. You need to get equipped. You need to go to your preacher or to your elders and say, teach me. Teach me how to teach. I want to learn. I can't teach a Sunday school class. Teach me how to do it. Or maybe you need to learn Bible content. Um, And any one of you can do this, actually. If you want to learn the Bible inside and out, frontwards and backwards, I mean, you want to know the Bible, you call up to Summit and take the Diploma of Biblical Studies. Anybody can take that. And in two years, if you do the program, and it's not hard, it's it's not rocket surgery, it's something anybody can do, uh, you go up and do that. I think the whole program is like 700 bucks or something like that. 800 bucks maybe now. I don't know. Inflation, people. It's all Putin's fault, you know. Uh, the, the, if, you, uh, if you take that in a, over a two-year period, when you're done, you'll know the Bible as good as any Bible college graduate. I guarantee it. Because it takes you through the Bible five different ways, and when you're done, you're going to know the Bible. You're just going to know it. I've I've seen person after person do it. You want to get strong in your Bible knowledge and then you want to learn to teach? We'll teach you to teach. Take some classes from Summit or talk to your preacher or talk to your elders. Have them teach you how to lead a small group. Get involved. And if you are a church leader, look, identify the quality people, not just the problem people. So many times we go, we identify, okay, this person has a problem, I gotta help them. This person has a problem, I gotta help them. This person has a problem. And that's good. There's part of your ministry should be that. But sometimes we're so busy with the urgent needs of the eternally needy, we don't ever train people who can help us deal with the needy. And part of your job is to train other people so that they can help, so that you're not doing it all by yourself. Jesus trained up a new set of leaders and turned the world upside down. And we need to start training new leaders. I mean, even when they're young kids, identifying young people who are able to be trained and taught to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ. And that is a big part of what any good preacher does. You say, what should my preacher be doing with his time? It's it's not holding your hand like you're some little baby. It's identifying quality people and investing his time training them to do what he does. That's the biblical pattern that we need to hold to, that we need to guard and that we need to pass on. Let's take a break and eat some dessert, and we'll come back and pick up there at verse 3.
All right, we are in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Choke down that last little bit of cookie or whatever, that delicious apple dessert you had. And uh, you can follow along with me on the screen or in your Bible. 2 Timothy 2, verse 3. You therefore must, and that, that means it's imperative, you've got to do it, there's no other option, okay? You must endure hardship. How? How do we endure hardship? As a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I'm saying, and may the Lord give you understanding in all these things. Okay, so he gives him three analogies, and then he's like, think about this later. <laughs> Consider this. So let's look at, the, uh, look at it again. You must endure hardship, how? As a good soldier, because no one entangled in warfare, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself in the affairs of this life. And also, uh, anyone who competes in athletics, he doesn't get the reward or the, the, the blue ribbon or the gold, you know, uh, you know whatever in this place, the, the, this case, in their case, the crown of laurel wreaths. They don't get that unless they compete according to the rules. At least, that's how it used to be. <laughs> we won't bring up deflate gate that I'm still a little bitter about. Uh, and then also anyone who competes in athletics, okay, a hardworking farmer must be the first to partake of the crops. Consider what I'm saying, and may the Lord give you understanding in all these things. Let's try to consider what it, Timothy was told to consider. Number one, we endure hardship. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. I don't know why that is crown. Um, that's a typo there. Is that a typo in your notes? Or is it just on my screen? Okay, I'm... You think you thought that was the King James? Okay, let's see here. I'm not sure how... I'm glad it's not in the notes. That's good. Well, maybe. Uh, it's not, well, I'll fix it later. Okay. Wouldn't let me take that line back. Something's goofy there. Um, so... When he's been approved, he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So if we want the crown of life, we have to endure hardship. Um, no one ever goes, yeah, I'm going to go win an Olympic gold medal, but I'm never going to ever sweat. <laughs> I'm never going to do anything hard. <laughs> what, are you getting into curling? What? Uh, the, the <clears throat> when you compete as an Olympian, you should expect some pain, some hardship. Right? Look at 1 Peter 2.19. For it is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief and suffering wrongly. You will be commended. That means you will get a commendation from God if you will suffer for your conscience sake, to do the right thing. Sometimes we suffer because we have to obey our conscience. We have to teach what the Bible taught and people don't like it and they punish us for it. And if you're unwilling to, to, to suffer in order to follow your conscience, you're not going to be commended. You're going to get the other C word, condemned. You can get condemned or you can get... Con uh, I almost said it wrong. I almost said condemnation. 
condemnation. You could be commended. I feel like a porky pig. You could be commended. Okay, so uh, we want to endure hardship, as it says. How? How do we endure hardship? Like a soldier. Now, if you're not a little bit inspired by the Ukrainians watching all that's going on in the news, well, I just don't know how to help you. Because these people are suffering and enduring hardship for a cause and what they believe in. And a soldier doesn't join the army thinking it'll be all plush and easy and nice. They think, I'm going to be sleeping on the ground. I'm going to go without food. My life's going to be in danger. I'm going to be miserable. I'll probably be out in the elements, you know. Um, that's why they only accept the few in the proud and the Marines. <laughs> and that's why they go through basic training. And in training, it's all what? How do they train them? By make, taking it easy on them? Go putting them up in the Ritz? No. They punish them and put them through all kinds of difficulty and hardship to train them to be these effective, powerful soldiers. And we have to endure hardship how? Like a soldier. Why? What, what made those men on D-Day get in those amphibious landing craft knowing that they're probably going to their death? What made those B-17 pilots who had like one of the highest death rates in the whole war take those flying fortresses up again and again and again? Because it probably wasn't even as much love a country as it was I want mom and dad and brother and sister to be free. You know, when it comes right down to it, a lot of times the motivation for a soldier isn't patriotism as much as it is family. Because it's his family that he's protecting. And he's going over there and risking his life for. And yeah, everybody else's family too, but they're there fighting for their wives and their children. Why are the Russians so unmotivated and the Ukrainians so motivated in this war? Why were the British and the Haitian soldiers in the Revolution, American Revolution so unmotivated and the American colonials so motivated? Because men fighting to defend their homes and their families and their freedom are way more motivated than mercenaries or conscripts who don't even want to be there. Why were the Viet Cong so much more motivated than our soldiers? We want to fight and endure like a good soldier. Look at Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We don't fight with stinger missiles, or bombs, or tanks, or jets. 
or guns. We don't fight with those things. We fight with spiritual things. A spiritual battle. Our battle isn't against flesh and blood. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 and 12. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of this darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Our enemy's not Putin or Biden or Trump or ISIS. Our enemy is not a human being. Our enemy is Satan and the spiritual demonic forces of evil in heavenly places that are deceiving and animating the wicked to do their will. There are puppet masters behind the evil little puppets. And don't hate those taken captive to do their will. No, fight spiritually. You can't fight against the devil with a gun or with politics or with bullets or bombs. But you fight against him with your Bible, with your faith, with sharing the gospel, with loving people, with serving your fellow man, with prayers, with shields of faith and breastplates of righteousness and helmets of salvation and feet shod with the gospel and the good news to motivate you to move and tell people about Jesus Christ with the sword of the Spirit, both defensive and offensive weapon. With the truth wrapped around you, holding it all together. That's the weapons we fight with. That's the spiritual warfare. Not with carnal warfare. Now, I'm as patriotic as the next guy. And I certainly am no pacifist. And I do believe there's a time where war is just, especially when it's in self-defense. But... And I'm very patriotic, love my country. Think it's the finest one on earth at the moment. But it's passing away. And I'm not a citizen here. I'm a citizen of heaven. A lot of people in Paul's day took pride in their Roman citizenship or their Jewish citizenship. And Paul took pride in his heavenly citizenship. And Paul had Jewish and Roman citizenship. But he counted that as nothing. And today, I get scared sometimes when I see Christianity and patriotism mixed too much into one thing. And a over-focus on politics and culture wars rather than on the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the advancement of the eternal kingdom of God, which is the church. And here's all I want to say. Not that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. If you're involved in politics, fine. And I think Christians should be to a certain level. But here's the thing I'll ask. Are the weapons that you fight with spiritual or carnal? Of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, or carnal. Anger, rage, bitterness, division. 
Is there, uh, are you work of the flesh or work of the spirit? What, are, what weapons are you using? What kind of hardship are you enduring as a soldier? What kind of battle are you fighting? We have to endure hardship as a soldier. How? We don't get caught up in everything that's going on in the world. The whole point of the soldier analogy he gives here is you don't get caught up in the affairs of this life. Don't get caught up in the politics. Don't get caught up in the arguments on Facebook. Don't get caught up in materialism. Don't get caught up in the culture war. Don't get caught up on transient passing things or trivial things. Don't get caught up in wanting comfort and home and safety. Don't get caught up in this stuff. But be willing to suffer to go without right now because right now we're in a war. Right now we're in a battle. Whether you realize it or not, you're a war. And what they're fighting over isn't land or a constitution or temporary freedom here on earth or economics or political views. The prize is your soul and the soul of your spouse and of your children and your children's children and your neighbors and your loved ones. Souls are what we're fighting over. Not land, not gold, not silver, not oil. Souls are what are at stake. Eternal souls. That's the battle. And endure hardship. Be willing to sacrifice the transient temporary things of this life for the battle that is at hand. All that money that you save up and all the houses and lands that you save up and all that you build for yourself here, you will not keep. Lay up your treasure in heaven. What will your legacy be? So, number one, endure hardship like a soldier. Number two, be like an athlete and follow the rules. <laughs> Who's going to win the prize? People follow the rules. Well, sometimes people cheat, Kendall, and get away with it. The officiating is terrible at these games. I agree. But uh, the judge that's going to officiate the game of life sees everything and nothing gets past him. And you can't Tom Brady your way into heaven. 1 Corinthians 9. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable, so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air. He doesn't, he's not just running around this life wondering what he'll catch. He is focused on heaven and he's running towards heaven. He's not boxing at the air and, and chasing the shadows of wealth and I'm going to hit me some money, I'm going to hit me uh, good relationships or drugs or sex or you know whatever pleasure it is. He's not chasing, he's not boxing with the air. He's duking it out with the devil and he's laying them low. The God of peace, if you follow him, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. 
Be excellent at what is good and innocent of evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Romans 16, 19 says, okay, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Let us lay aside every weight and every sin that so easily entangles or ensnares us. And let us run with endurance. There's that word again. The race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Um, some Bibles translate that, uh, instead of author, they translate it trailblazer because it has the idea of a person who sets the, the trail or authors or writes the trail, the path. He's the trailblazer and finisher of our faith who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus set the path. What's the path? Be willing to die, scorn the shame, let it roll off you like water off a duck's back, and someday you'll be enthroned in heaven with Christ. He set the trail. That's the trail. The trail of Jesus is your trail. His path is your path. You die to sin. You die to self. You die to this life. You sacrifice yourself. And all the mocking and the shame that comes with it, whatever. And then someday you're enthroned with him in heaven. That's the trailblazer's path. Follow it. Consider Jesus. And he didn't have a house and he didn't have money and he didn't have possessions and he didn't seek those things. He didn't try to set up an earthly kingdom. He didn't get involved in politics. He cared about one thing. Souls. He came to seek and save the lost. That's what he was about. Imitate him. That's the race we're running. Now, if you watch athletes today who are running in races, they wear some pretty skimpy outfits. <laughs> You see some of these uh, female, uh, I'm like, oh my goodness, they're running around in that. And then, uh, and then guys, they'll have on these really light shorts and their shoes are really light. Have you ever held a, a real professional running shoe? I mean, it's light as a feather. And they don't have on long robes or cumbersome things. Now, I'm embarrassed to say the ancient Greeks, when they would compete in their Olympics, it was only men and they would compete uh, nude because they, wouldn't, they, wanted, they didn't want anything to hold them back when they were running. Um, it used to be stock car racing was they would take cars as they came from the factory and race them. But they would strip everything off of them. Uh, race motorcycles are stripped down. There's, no, uh, there's not even a starter on race motorcycles. They have a little thing there and they have a little gun that they stick in the side of it and they pull that trigger and it starts up the engine and you can't, there's no starter because they don't want the weight of the starter on a motorcycle. Um, the, these race motorcycles are stripped everything off of them. They don't have airbags. <laughs> they don't have, you know, headlights. They don't have, you know, they're just bare bones, you know, so they can be light. They throw off everything that would hold them back. And athletes try to throw off everything that would encumber them. And we need to throw off sin that ensnares us and entangles us. You can't run the race for Christ when you got stuff wrapped around you making you fall over and trip that entangles you and ensnares you. You need to throw off anything that's keeping you from running your race from God. If Facebook, is, if your computer, if your job, if a relationship, if someone or something is keeping you from being the Christian you need to be, ditch it. 
there was one guy who was wealthy and he worshiped his wealth and he came to Jesus and said, what do, I, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He said, you need to sell everything you got and give it to the poor and follow me. Now Jesus didn't say that to everybody. He didn't tell everybody else to sell everything they had and give it to the poor. Why did he pick it on this guy? Because not everybody else was being tempted by that temptation. But for that guy, wealth was an hindrance to him following Jesus. So he said, just get rid of it. He never told Peter to sell his house and his fishing business. He didn't tell anybody else to get rid of it. But that guy, his problem was greed, and so he had told him to get rid of it. And anything that's holding you back from being the man or the woman of God that you need to be, get rid of it. If you've got a friend or you're dating someone that, that is holding you back in your relationship, get rid of them. You know? Uh, I heard from Paul Simon there's 50 ways to leave your lover. There, you know... Hop on the bus, Gus. Don't need to discuss much. Drop off the key, Lee. Set yourself free. Get whatever it is in your life that you need out of your life, out of your life. And run the race like an athlete. And then, like a farmer. Um, this one uh, is interesting. Now, the soldier one, he was saying, endure hardship like a soldier. The athlete one was saying, throw everything off like a good athlete that you don't need. And then, in this last one he says, but like a good farmer, feed yourself off the crop. You got to eat. I mean, right? Uh, have you, <laughs> the, uh, rallies told me that, taught me that secret. You got to eat. It's uh, one on their commercial. Um, whoever goes to war at his own expense. Now, does anybody go to war at their own expense? No. Who plants a vineyard does not eat its fruit? This, this verse really stuck with my dad and he's like I want to get to the point of the school where we don't got to charge the guys tuition for the school who goes to war as a we don't charge guys who join the military we don't make them pay for their basic training who goes to war at his own expense and so dad says I, I want it to be free and I don't know you know I don't know how we did it but somewhere we got to the way we could we could do that and um, going forward, you know, so far we're, the funding is there, but, you know, uh, things have changed. I, I don't know what your church is giving is like with everything that's going on with inflation, but uh, my church and the school, you know, the funding's, you know, hey, we got to fund ministry. We got to give because people can't do this at their own expense. Who fights at their own? And so dad's thing was, I want to be able to train these guys so that they don't graduate from college it, with massive student loan debt that they could never pay back on a preacher's salary. Because let's face it, preachers don't make a lot. And so that was the idea at Summit and why we've, uh, you know, and why so many people have, have bought into that concept and why so many people give thousands of dollars to, I mean, all kinds of people in churches fund Summit. Why? Because they believe that we should not burden these young men who've given their life to ministry and are going to sacrifice all their life with huge college debt. And who goes to war at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard does not eat the fruit? Not me. I got a pear tree in my backyard and I eat them. Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same thing also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it oxen that God's concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sake? 
For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, that who threshes in hope should be a partner of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing that we reap material things? Um, I don't feel guilty because the laborer is worthy of his hire. So I don't feel guilty. If I give my full time to preaching and teaching and to, and to serving other people and to writing these lessons and to doing this, I don't feel guilty for taking an offering. I earned it. I did the work. You don't feel guilty when you work at the factory, put in your eight hours and they pay you. You don't feel bad when you're a farmer and you did all that hard work planting that field and you sell your corn, your beans or whatever and, and reap a harvest. When you sell your cows and, and make a profit, you don't feel guilty. You worked hard. You earned that. You taught those classes as a school teacher. You worked in your business. You put in your, you don't feel guilty. Why should I feel guilty? You know, well, preacher only works one day a week. <laughs> wish that was true. I wish I could just drag people along on a typical preacher's week sometime and let them see what that's like. But you're like a farmer and you should get a harvest. And churches should be taking care of their preachers. Now, should the preacher be riding around in his own private jet, driving a Ferrari and living in a mansion like some pastors we know? No. But he should be making what the average person makes. People say, well, how much should I pay the preacher? I always say this. Go find the average household income. Not average individual income. The average household income for an area in your area, your county. Find out what that is and pay the preacher that. And if you can't afford that, you can't afford a preacher right now. You pay somebody part-time. But if somebody does full-time work, then they should be paid what the average family in your community is making. They're not, making, they're not getting rich, but they're just as good as the, the, the Jones next door. They can afford a house. They can afford a car. They can afford to live. And uh, I don't see a lot of churches doing that. The preacher should not feel guilty for taking a harvest. No one ever plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the fruit. No one ever farms some animals and doesn't drink some of the milk or eat some of the meat or take some of the wool and make clothes. You put in the work, a laborer is worthy of his hire. And not just evangelists, who did we learn else should get paid if they're given their time to preaching and teaching? Elders of the church. There you go. Thank you. Shouldn't feel bad. If we got a secretary who's helping out at the church, giving time. If you got somebody that's doing something for the church, they're doing some job. You got a deacon that's given full time to deaconing? Pay him. If, you know, there's nothing wrong with paying somebody who, who puts in the work. The labor is worthy of their hire. And by the way, this is one of the things that God rebuked Israel for and that God condemns in the book of Proverbs and God, Jesus warns about and James warns about in his book. If you are an employer and you hire people, you pay them a decent wage and if you don't, you're, you're going to deal with God. Because when they cry out to God and say, I can't make enough to make ends meet here, God, God's going to go, wait, who's your employer? And he will hold you accountable. And if you're an employer, you make sure you pay people good. Don't skimp on the pay. You have a special event. You have a revival. You have a singing group in. You pay them good. You pay them so that when they leave, they go, wow, you gave us a lot more than most churches. Thank you. You be the church that's generous. You be the church, that may, and you make sure. You guys are all part of churches. You make sure your church is generous. And you be generous. You give your tithe and your offering. If everybody would tithe, 
you have more than enough money to do what the church needs to do. You have more than enough money to pay your preacher, to pay whoever, and to do what the church does. If just everybody in the church tithed, you'd have more than enough money. Like a, like a farmer, don't be ashamed to make your living. God ordained this. God ordained that those who preach the gospel should make their living of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 9. Okay, so uh, consider this. <coughs> he says, <coughs> he gives them three analogies. The soldier, the athlete, the farmer, and then he said, think about those later. Consider that. <coughs> Some things, you got to think about it. You know, when we do the teacher training program, one of the things I'm going to tell you is that the only way that you can properly teach the Bible is if you've meditated on it. You've got to let it ruminate. You've got to let it get in there and soak in your brain and everything makes sense and align with other things that you already know. You've got to start putting pieces of the puzzle together and let it ruminate. And then, once you put it in the context of the rest of the Bible, then it starts to make sense and you can explain it better. That's what makes for good lesson writing and understanding of the scriptures and then teaching the scriptures is you've got to meditate upon it. One of the things the Bible teaches over and over and over again is biblical meditation. And we have to meditate. I'm not talking about, um, um, no, not that Eastern mindless meditation. I'm talking about where you sit and you think about it. You consider it. Because wisdom, you don't get zapped with wisdom. Like, God, give me wisdom. He's not going to go come down with, hi, I'm the wisdom fairy. Ding! Doesn't work that way. And all of a sudden you got wisdom. It doesn't work that way. Wisdom has to be sought. Wisdom and insight, you've got to seek it. Proverbs 2, 3, and 5. Indeed, if you call out for insight, and cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver, and search for it as for hidden treasure, then, and only then, I will add, you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. He who seeks finds. He who asks receives. He who knocks. The door is open. You don't seek, you don't find. Philippians 3, 15 and 16. And if on some point you think differently, that too... God will make clear to you, only let us live up to what we've already attained. And I've talked about this with you a little bit already in this class, and I'll say it again because it's just a reoccurring thing that I'm seeing in this book is if you want to go to the next level, you've got to put into practice the level you're already at. If you want to learn to read, you've got to rehearse the alphabet. You're going to learn the sounds, and then you're going to start with some basic words, and it's going to take some practice and some effort. If you want to become a good athlete, you've got to learn the basics, get the basics down. You want to become a good musician, you want to become a good poet, a good author, it just takes work. I saw a thing this week, a video progression of a guy who's a really good artist. He's 30 years old now, and he started and he showed his first work of art, which is a little lion he drew when he was nine years old. And it was a pathetic nine-year-old's lion, like any one of your kids has drawn. It doesn't look anything better than what your kids have on your refrigerator right now or your grandkids have on your refrigerator right now. Just a pathetic little lion. But then he kept drawing, and he got better and better. And then he's 13, and he gets really good. And he drew this eyeball when he was a freshman in high school. That's pretty impressive. Uh, and then he gets better and better and better. And pretty soon he's like, man, that's really starting to look like a lion. He put a lion in there every once in a while. And then he started doing faces. And by the time he got in his 20s, he, you couldn't tell his pictures from a photograph. I mean, his color drawings 
looked like photographs, but it was a drawing that he did. And then the last one he showed was a tiger, and I can tell you, and it has the, the first tiger lion thing he drew, and then the last one, and I'm telling you, the first one is just a pathetic kid's drawing, and the last one I couldn't tell from a photograph. He just kept practicing and practicing and practicing. He wasn't natural. It wasn't a gift. He sought it. He searched for it. He worked for it. Jake didn't just pick up a mandolin and start shredding one day. There was work involved. Nothing good happens without hard work. Turns out, a few years back, Adam sinned. And God cursed the whole stinking place. And one of the curses was that he was going to work by the sweat of his brow. No pain, no gain. That's the curse upon this world. And if you will not work, you won't eat. And if you do eat, it'll be temporary and you're stealing and you won't enjoy it. You've got to work to find wisdom. You've got to put in effort. Now, is your effort enough? No. Turns out you need the grace of God. But He only gives it to people who live up to what they've already attained. If you do that, then God will make clear to you the next thing. I don't understand this passage. I don't understand what God's... I don't know what God wants me to do. Live up to what you already know. Keep looking at the basics. Keep living out what you've learned so far. And one day, boing, the light bulb comes on. I'm speaking from experience. There have been times I've read passages dozens and dozens of times and didn't get it. And then one day, oh, I swear I hear angels. Oh, you know, hallelujah. Oh, I got it. I got it. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> and then it feels stupid that you didn't get it the whole time. Consider, wisdom must be sought. So how do you endure in ministry? You say, well, what do I need to endure in ministry? Trust me, if you go into ministry, you'll understand it takes endurance. How do you endure in ministry? Don't get entangled in worldliness. Endure hardship like a good soldier. Don't lose your integrity. Compete in the race according to the rules. Run, throw off everything that's entangling you and run the laid out course. No shortcuts to God's will. There's no shortcuts to church growth. There's no shortcuts to evangelism. There's no shortcuts to spiritual development. There's no shortcuts to discipleship. Follow the prescribed path. Don't muzzle the ox. You want to lose your preacher and send him out of ministry? Don't pay him good. Wear him out. Work him hard. Don't ever give him vacation. And don't ever help him. And he'll burn out real quick and then you can get a new preacher to do the same thing to it and be like the average church that has a preacher for 18 months, spits him out and goes on to the next one. Take care of your preachers. And if you're the preacher, take care of yourself. Do not muzzle the ox. You want, in, you want in, your preacher to endure? You want a long-term ministry? You want, we want to get a preacher and have him there 20 years because that's what's most successful in churches. That's true. You want to do that? Take good care of him. 
Don't muzzle the ox. And don't skip personal reflection and devotion time. Now, I made this list specifically for evangelists. Don't get caught up in all the worldly stuff that everybody else is doing. You are a soldier of the cross. Don't lose your integrity. Follow the rules. Practice what you preach. Don't muzzle the ox. Don't constantly be sacrificing everything. Don't make your wife and your kids go without everything because you're in ministry so that they're bitter and angry towards God and blame God for they, they don't have Take care of yourself and your family and meet your needs. You've got to eat. I'm not saying you have to live an opulent life and you can't make some sacrifices. You'll have to in ministry. But don't be depriving yourself and your family of your basic needs. Don't be ashamed to ask for a raise. And don't skip personal reflection and devotion time. You're pouring out, you're pouring out, you're pouring out. Every day you're pouring your life into all these people. You're trying to do all these things. And if you don't ever take time like Jesus regularly did, where you leave the crowds, you even leave the 12 that you're discipling, you even leave the three that are your best friends, and you go off by yourself early in the morning, late at night, whenever you need to, and spend some time with your Father. And you read the Bible, and you pray, and you reflect. If you don't do these four things, I guarantee you, you'll get burnt out. These four things chew up preachers and spit them out if they're not done. And if you don't believe me, take some time and reflect on what Paul said. Okay, verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Oh boy. Therefore, let me let, therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with, with eternal glory. Okay, things to remember about Jesus. He said there's some things I want you to remember. Number one, he is the Christ. He's the Messiah. The Messiah was prophesied, 333 prophecies, some say, 330-some anyway, prophecies about this coming Messiah how many of them did Jesus fulfill? All of them. One of the things we remember about Jesus is he was prophesied in the Old Testament and he fulfilled them all. Number two, he's descended of David. One of those prophecies was that he would be the son of David. That he would have the authority of David's kingdom. And that he would be the son of David. So Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. Christ is just, Christos is just the Greek word for the... Um, Hebrew word of Messiah. He is the anointed one. He's the Christ. He's a descendant of David. Okay, those are two pretty good reasons to follow him right there. What's the next? He is risen from the dead. That's the one we just celebrated last Sunday. Why should I follow Jesus? Why should I listen to him? He rose from the dead. I mean, I think that's probably the most convincing proof that somebody is from God of anything I could think of. It's like, he says, oh, I fulfilled all these prophecies. Oh, that's cool. And I'm the appropriate uh, son of David. Oh, that, that's impressive. And I'm going to die, and on the third day I'm going to raise to life. Really? And then he does it. Okay, that's pretty convincing, folks. 
He's risen from the dead, and because of that, we know salvation is in him. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Salvation is found in no other name. No other name is given that can save. Jesus alone is our source of salvation, and he gives eternal glory. Not only does he save you from your sin, he's going to glorify your body and give you a glorified body like his. That's eternal. What's he offering you? Eternal life, eternal glory. Now, there's some people who teach false gospels and, you know, you can read their little books and stuff and what they'll do is they'll try to reinterpret the, the words. If you change the meaning of words, then you change the meaning of sentences, Right? And there'll be false teachers if you read some goofy literature that's floating around Christian churches today that teaches you that when the Bible talks about uh, hope and glory, those are cipher words. And what hope and glory really mean is that you can receive the Holy Spirit in you and be perfect while you're here on earth. And they're not cipher words, they're just words. Um, because the gospel is clear, it's not hidden anymore. Again and again, Paul says, my gospel is not hidden. It's not anything you can't understand. You don't need to understand any ciphers. When the Bible talks about the hope of eternal life, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit in you now. He's talking about the hope of eternal life with the coming of Christ. And when he talks about eternal glory, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit in you now. The Holy Spirit in you now is just a deposit. A deposit on what? Eternal glory. That we're going to be glorified with Christ. When? When does the Bible say we'll be glorified with Christ? When we see Him. When He returns. And don't let anybody uh, take the word glory and the word hope and try to make them into things that are now. <laughs> Romans 8, it says, who hopes for what they already have? But we wait for it patiently. Paul says we haven't received our hope yet. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, he says there's how many hopes? One hope. And what is that hope? The hope of eternal glory. And that's what he's giving us. So uh, we will pick up next week and I'll talk about suffering for Christ because I think we're out of time. We will pick up and talk about the suffering of Christ. And next week, um, I'm going to have to speed up if we're going to get done with all this before the class. Because so, we've got two classes left, I think. And uh, so uh, next week, what, what am I in? I'm in chapter two. So we will speed it up. I'm going to have to go faster next week. We're going to get through chapter three next week. And then we'll do chapter four the following week. So um, get ready for hyperspeed when we get together next week, all right?